J. Nelson Crayville, the president of the Associated Mennonite Theological Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana, says that the book of Revelation is the Jurassic Park of biblical interpretation. I think it's an apt analogy. For what one experiences as we walk through the jungle created by the words of this book is not so dissimilar in some respects from that which is fantastically pictured in Michael Crichton's best-selling thriller. As we move through the the pages of this park, in a sense, we're immediately thrown into conflict. For there is this part of us that wants to keep going deeper and deeper into the mystery, almost obsessively curious at the thought of what more amazing and terrifying creature will leap out at us next. And yet there is this other part of us, this somewhat more fearful part of us, that finds ourselves so overwhelmed by what we are encountering that we want to fly from the island of Patmos as far and as fast as our mental helicopters can carry us. And as we follow further along the trail and and move into the region that is defined by chapters 12 through 17 of this book, it doesn't get any easier for us this conflict. For it is here that we encounter the most magnificent of all of the creatures discovered thus far outside the person of the lamb and the lion, that is God himself. For it is here that we encounter the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Velociraptors of Revelation. Now that's not what the Bible calls them, of course. The book of Revelation refers to them as as the great dragon and the beasts of the earth and from the sea. Now much has been made of these creatures down through the ages. In almost every epoch of human history, people have tended to assign to some evil emperor or king or nation at some time or another their particular identities, believing these earthly powers to be driven by a demonic force. Next week I'm going to explore with you some of those historical applications, but today I want to focus on what I think is the larger meaning of these figures. In between all of the puzzling imagery that is given to us by the book of Revelation is this very consistent and clear message. That behind the thick foliage of human politics and economics and social affairs, there lurks and works a rapacious predator and his colleagues. Verse 9 of chapter 12 bluntly identifies him as follows, and I quote, He is that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. 
Now, I recognize that this sort of statement is usually guaranteed to create a diversity of responses from those listening in. There will be some who will immediately say, oh, yeah, I believe that. I've known that all along. And there will be those on the other end of the spectrum who will say, oh, give me a break. That's a fantasy. And wherever you happen to be upon that continuum, one thing is clear. Most people today are somewhat provoked by the idea of Satan and his influence in the world. According to a study by the Princeton Religious Research Center, some 66% of Americans believe in the existence of a personified adversary to the cause of God and good, while another 28% say that's nonsense. And the remaining 6% say, we're not sure. That the majority tend toward belief in Satan may help to explain why we have seen such tremendous focus in recent years upon the nature and the activities of this being, all kinds of speculation that has shown itself in popular books and films. Sometimes Satan is pictured there as a sort of debonair and attractively savvy, bon vivant, of the like portrayed by Jack Nicholson, perhaps, in The Witches of Eastwick, or in a tougher, more hard-edged version by Al Pacino in the recent Devil's Advocate. In these characterizations, the devil can appear to be someone who, albeit cursed with a wicked temper you don't want to get on the wrong end of, does seem to have this side of him that is at least faintly attractive. And that seems to actually want, in some part, to help people along. In this connection, I think of the story of a woman who came home one day with an extremely expensive dress and upon learning how much the garment cost, her husband went absolutely ballistic. I can't believe you bought that, honey. What are you thinking? We can't possibly afford that. I know, said the woman, I know. You know, I, 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 I didn't go in there planning to buy it, I promise you. It's just, it's just that the devil made me do it. The devil made you do it, he responded. She asked, that's exactly what happened. There I was. I was just trying on the dress. Just trying it on, mind you. Not going to take it home. And all of a sudden, the devil comes up to me and says, My dear, I've never seen you look more gorgeous than in that dress. Oh, come on, said the husband. Well, then why, why didn't you say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan? She said, I did. And he replied, Mabel? It looks even better from behind. <laughs> We've grown cozy with our notion of Satan. And sometimes Satan can even be portrayed in pop culture as someone for whom we might actually even feel a bit sorry. As in a recent recreation of Faust, staged by Randy Newman. There, Satan was pictured as a somewhat sympathetic and expansive soul. 
someone who'd gotten on the wrong side of an obsessive, compulsive God and been cast out of heaven. But the clear implication throughout Newman's version of the story was that though Satan was a bit of a beast at his worst moments, he was really only the sort who, with a bit of kind treatment and perseverance, could readily be transformed into a charming prince again. I say again, we've grown reasonably comfortable with the adversary. And that these ambivalent and even charitable depictions of him have gained such currency in the popular imagination today suggests perhaps how far this culture has drifted away from a biblical worldview, whether you agree with that worldview or not. And it suggests as well how desperately we need the corrective lens which the book of Revelation provides in our view of him. When the Bible speaks of evil, it isn't referring to human frailty or vice slightly exaggerated. It isn't describing the sort of reformable beast that beauty met. No, when the book of Revelation talks about the devil, it's speaking of a being that it sees as so wicked and so ruthless and so bloodthirsty that he actually wants to do that which is most heinous to the human imagination. To feed on an innocent baby. That's the defining image we're given in Revelation chapter 12. It says that Satan is like a dragon waiting to devour the newborn son of a pregnant woman as soon as the child comes out. And it is, it is really one of those holographic images that we're being given, an image that has its basis and meaning in several different contexts and dimensions. On one obvious level, it describes the events surrounding the birth of Jesus to Mary. Mary is the woman in the story here who's clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, images of, of the honored role she plays in God's unfolding salvation history. And in a sense, we can easily see how Mary would fit into this story and her baby because we can recall how that reptilian character, King Herod, sought to devour her baby when he was newly born. And we recall how God snatched him up and away and took him along with his parents down to the deserts of Egypt for safety. On another level, the image here suggests how rapaciously the devil acted through the chief priests and the Pharisees who sought to destroy Jesus' life, the Son of God, at the cross itself. Yet again, God raised his Son to new life and preserved Mary in the care of the Apostle John himself. 
Alongside of these events, says John, a a cosmic battle was raging. In fact, the suggestion here is that these events, the birth of a baby and the, the chasing after that child by physical and spiritual forces on earth are, are, are but really the front end of a much larger reality, a great struggle happening behind the curtain of history. And in that cosmic confrontation, we see the archangel Michael, the great warrior angel, going into battle against the dragon and his dark angels. And in the end, Satan is defeated and hurled down from authority. And the vision pictures the devil licking his wounds in a sense, now searching the earth since he can no longer get to the child who has been glorified in heaven, but searches the earth for the mother, for retribution, for the damsel herself. But again, God preserves her from persecution and Destruction. And finally, the enraged serpent does the one thing left for him to do. He can't get at the child. He can't get at the mother. And so we're told he turns his attention on the rest of her offspring. I quote, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It is here that the hologram shifts to a further plane of meaning. For you see, now the damsel is no longer Mary at all. But it is the church itself. What Revelation calls the bride of Christ. And the mother of every Christian on earth. The staggeringly sobering news that John is imparting to his first century readers and by extension to believers in every age is that that you and I are now the dragon's prey. It is as if the great Tyrannosaurus Rex, seeing that he can't get to the desired victims here in heaven, suddenly whirls And in the glint of that intelligent, fierce eye, we see his absolutely murderous intent to get you and me now. Just how he does that, we'll talk about further next week. But let me hint at it today. There's an old Indian legend that helps to make the point well, and in the story, a young brave wanting to test his mettle and manhood chooses to hike from the flowery meadow in which he lives to the top of a great snow-capped mountain. Upon arriving at the peak after an arduous journey, the The young man is filled with a sense of pride at the distance he's traveled and the magnificence of the view he now commands when all of a sudden there's a sound at his feet. He glances down and sees there in the dirt close to his feet the figure of a a snake rustling. 
And before he can move, the snake speaks and says, I'm about to die. It's too cold for me up here, and and there's no food. Please take me and put me under your shirt and take me down to the valley. No way, says the brave. I know your kind. If I do that, you'll bite me. You're a rattlesnake. And your bite will kill me. Not so, said the snake. Not so. I will treat you differently. I guarantee it. If you do this for me, I will not harm you. The youth resists for a while, but this is a very persuasive snake. And at long last, the youth tucks the serpent underneath his shirt and carries it down to the valley floor with him and there in the meadow lays it down gently in the grass. At which point the serpent coils, rattles, and sinks his fangs into the boy's leg. But you promised, howls the boy. Yes, I did, says the serpent as he slithers off into the grass. But you knew what I was when you picked me up. To this day, the Bible suggests, the serpent works this way. Though he is as Revelation reminds us and gives us a glimpse of a many-headed hydra of staggering proportions and, and power signified by these horns and crowns in this vision here. He is pursu- persistently making himself out in his propositions to be as harmless as a mere garter snake. And a Sunday afternoon stroll in the mountains. And so he says, pick up that flirtation or that next drink or cigarette or that little lie. You're still in control. It can't hurt you. And compromise on that principle. You know, situations vary. And cut that moral corner if it gets you where you need to ultimately wind up and, and reach a little further out for that brass ring. It, it can't hurt. Invent that passion. And bow to that Pressure, and you'll be more relaxed and, and shave that truth. Do what other people, plenty of other people are doing, and you'll be so glad that you did, and so many people do. They pick up and they go. And they follow what looks like just a little snake trail into the undergrowth never realizing until much, much later that they're walking right into the jaws of an enormous dragon. 
whose aim is the disfigurement of the image of God in the children of the king and the destruction of all that is beautiful about the damsel that is the church. And his strategies, the Bible says again and again, are so cunning. And he is a chameleon, able to manifest himself in many ways. And he has successfully, as we'll discover next week, insinuated himself into many of the most influential institutions this world boasts of, and he has people carrying him along close to their heart who have no idea what kind of a creature they've got under their shirt. And this is why Christ calls the children of his church to walk thoughtfully. And it's why he calls us to flee from evil, not even to trifle with it for a moment, even when it seems very small. And it's why he urges us to take pains, no matter how strong we are, to keep taking up the sword of his word and armoring ourselves spiritually in every way that we can. But keep this in perspective, too, if you would. At his most towering height, in the eyes of Christ, this dragon is no more than a newt on the sidewalk. And the offspring of the damsel, we're told way back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, will one day crush the serpent's head with his heel. The great Scottish reformer John Knox once put it this way, and I'll close with his words. Mark what has been the practice of the devil from the beginning. Most cruelly to rage against God's children when God begins to show them mercy. But if Satan Fume and roar against you, says Knox, whether it be against your bodies by persecution or inwardly in your conscience by spiritual battle. Do not be discouraged as though you were now less acceptable in God's presence or that Satan at any time might prevail over you. No, I have good hope. And my prayer will likewise be that you may be so strengthened that the world and Satan himself may understand and perceive that it is God himself who fights your battle. May it be so.